This is 50 miles per hour. Pop quiz, hot shot. There's a bomb on a bus. You're deeply nuts, you know that. Once the bus goes 50 miles an hour, the bomb is on. Stay on or get off. If it drops below 50, stay on or get off. It blows up. Oh darn. What do you do? You have a hair trigger aimed at your head. What do you do? What do you do? What do you do? I'm your host, Chris Tapley, and you're listening to an oral history of director Jan de Bont's 1994 summer blockbuster, Speed. Straight from the people who made it happen. Now, don't forget to fasten your seatbelts. Let's hit the road. You know, there's a certain excitement when a film hits big out of nowhere at the box office. I think today's audiences might be a little numb to it and not fully understand this. After all, every other year leading up to the pandemic, it seemed like records were being shattered left and right. The Disney machine, in particular, has made an art of it with the Marvel and Star Wars brands. Franchises have come to dominate the annual list of top-grossing movies. The most impressive entries in the current, say, top 30 all-time box office champs are movies like Titanic and E.T. the Extraterrestrial, if only because they've managed to survive this modern-day onslaught of movies based on IP with built-in audiences. That wasn't always the case. I believe 2011 was the first year that the domestic top 10 was nothing but sequels and IP-based entries. And again, ever since, it just feels like box office success doesn't have the same ring to it. That's partly why the Barbenheimer phenomenon last summer was so exciting. I'm sure I sound like an old man pining for an era that is gone forever, but hey, that's sort of the vibe of this podcast in the first place. Speed opened on June 10th, 1994 on 2,140 screens. It was an instant hit and a totally unexpected, overachieving success. It pulled in $14,456,194 that first weekend, which was about $6,540 per screen. It even exceeded Fox's expectations after they knew from the test screening process that they had something special on their hands. Let me read for you Variety's assessment of the film's debut. Fox's speed created rush-hour business as it climbed aboard the weekend box office with an estimated $14 million launch. The actioner's momentum was easily ahead of Columbia Castle Rock's City Slickers 2, The Legend of Curly's Gold, the other major debut release, which rode into third with a sizable $11.5 million. The battle between speed and slickers had been envisioned as more of a head-to-head race, with the sequel seen as having a slight edge. But the Fox pick began to pick up the marketing pace on Monday, and by opening day, audiences decided to take the bus to the end of the line. That analysis comes from the late, great Len Clady, by the way. He quotes Fox's former president of distribution, the late Tom Sherrick, in the story as well. Tom says, It's the kind of success that makes this industry so surprising and exciting. Obviously, our expectations were more modest prior to delivery. It was scheduled for August and October until we started to preview. We got excited, exhibitors found it, the critics loved it, and now the public has embraced it. What drives this kind of success? We spent last week detailing the studio's marketing efforts, which were a huge part of that equation. But here's what's fascinating about a movie like Speed, and Sherrick said it right there. 
the critics loved it. This movie wasn't just a popular success. It was a critical success. So with that in mind, I'd love to just read a few excerpts from a smattering of reviews. First of all, here's Roger Ebert in the Chicago Sun-Times. This was a four-star review, which I've said before, it's just so awesome that he went all out like that for a movie like this. Ebert wrote, Speed is like an ingenious wind-up machine. It's a smart, inventive thriller that starts with hostages trapped on an elevator and continues with two chases, one on a bus, one on a subway, so that it's wall-to-wall -wall with action, stunts, special effects, and excitement. We've seen this done before, but seldom so well or at such a high pitch of energy. And he closed his review out like so. Films like Speed belong to the genre I call bruised forearm movies, because you're always grabbing the arm of the person sitting next to you. Done wrong, they seem like tired replays of old chase cliches. Done well, they're fun. Done as well as speed, they generate a kind of manic exhilaration. That's the goat talking there, okay? Here was Mr. Ebert's TV cohort, Gene Siskel, in the pages of the Chicago Tribune. Our flick of the week is Speed, the first American film of the overhyped summer season to deserve your immediate attendance. As a thriller, Speed ranks with the fun-loving excitement of the diehard pictures. Keanu Reeves is absolutely charismatic, giving a performance juiced with joy as he jumps through elevator shafts, under a bus speeding through the LA freeway system, and atop a subway train. Best of all, just when you think Speed is over, it takes you on a new high. Speaking of those two, let's just throw in Siskel and Ebert's volley about the movie on their weekly show, Siskel and Ebert at the Movies. Speed works. Boy, it sure does. This movie was fun. Yes. This is what I call a bruised forearm movie yeah. because you grab the arm of the person sitting next to you uh, in scenes like the one where the bus is going to have to try to jump that 50-foot gap. Yeah, I knew it wasn't possible in real life, but I didn't care. I thought this movie was really superb in oh, the yeah. way it put together these very, you know, like how can in Los Angeles you have a bus that can't go less than 50 miles an hour with right. the bad traffic out there? Right. And how do they manage to keep moving? more than 50 miles an hour. That in itself well, there was, are also was some terrific. Marvelous stunt pieces when he has to f try and get, get at the bus. the bus. Yeah. All of that mm -hmm. stuff really yeah. works. And that could have, uh -huh. you know, they could have shortchanged us in a whole lot of different ways. He's really, you know, we yeah. feel that uh -huh. he's really down there uh -huh. and a lot of work is done. And also grab simple things like grabbing people out of small places and freeing them up. It's all yeah, done and very well. At the end, well. when you think, my God, this movie can't do anything more, then they go down to the subway yeah. train and you have an old, a whole other movie right down there. It's a lot It of was fun. a lot of fun. Some more blurbs for you. Here's Kenneth Turan in the Los Angeles Times. Action directing is a put-up-or-shut-up game, a skill that can't be faked or finessed. Even a 10-year-old can tell if you've got it or not. And on the evidence of the invigorating speed, Jan de Bont has definitely got it. Here's Janet Maslin in the New York Times. At a time of year when Hollywood traditionally bludgeons its audiences back into the Stone Age, you can still pick your poison. The summertime no-brainer needn't be entirely without brains. It can be as savvy as Speed, the runaway bus movie that delivers wall-to-wall -wall action, a feat that's never as easy as it seems. This film's dialogue isn't much more literate than a bus schedule, but its plotting is smart and breathless enough to make up for it. Here's Peter Travers in Rolling Stone, and boy, if any movie was ever cut out for a Peter Travers blurb, it's Speed. He says, If you're looking for action movie heaven, try Speed, a crackling blend of suspense and fun that gives you the rush of a runaway roller coaster. He closes with, 
Still, the fireworks wouldn't count for much if the hardware overwhelmed the humanity. Speed cinches its spot as the thrill ride of summer by providing characters to hiss at and root for. Jack and Annie actually manage to strike up a convincing romance even at hyperspeed and without taking their eyes off the road. It's an impressive feat, enhanced by the film's knack, shared with The Fugitive, for serving up two hours of pure pow without gratuitous gore. Action flicks are usually written off as a debased genre, unless, of course, they work. And speed works like a charm. It's a reminder of how much movie escapism can still stir us when it's dished out with this kind of dazzle. Pass the popcorn. Finally, here's Owen Gleiberman in the pages of Entertainment Weekly. Rest in peace. The magazine, not Owen, who is alive and well writing for Variety these days. He wrote, What disaster movies were to the 70s, action films are to the 90s. Lurid cinematic comic books that, in their appetite for destruction, for bigger and better thrills, tap our collective anxieties about urban apocalypse. Recently, though, my anxieties have felt a little tapped out. The action genre, with its car chases and smash-em-up violence, its endless formula sadism, has become mired in a dead-end, we've-seen-it-all-before lethargy. That's what makes speed an exhilarating shot of adrenaline. The film takes off from formula elements. It's yet another variation on Die Hard. But it manipulates those elements so skillfully with such a canny mixture of delirium and restraint that I walked out of the picture with a rare sensation that every gaudy thrill had been earned. Those are all wonderful, glowing assessments, but I think, perhaps, there wasn't a more significant stamp of critical approval than, of all people, Anthony Lane, film critic for The New Yorker. The opening paragraph of his review is frankly the stuff of legend. And I quote, Speed is set in Los Angeles. Most of it takes place on a bus. It is a film full of explosions, but bare of emotional development. Its characters are no more than sketches. It addresses no social concerns. It is morally inert. It's the movie of the year. Now, you might think that was a setup for a begrudgingly positive assessment full of snark, but no, Lane loved the movie. And he went on to shower it with praise throughout his review. Those 48 words probably read like an indictment today, given what movies are expected to be by many critical minds. But they're not. They're a reflection of cinema's most basic goal. To entertain. Here is screenwriter Graham Yost. Well, he's right. It's all true. It was certainly the movie of my year. You know, I mean, listen, I've been doing TV and, you know, I spent the next days. Um, and Connie and I met in a running group. One of the reasons I wanted to join this running group was because Frank Marshall and Kathy Kennedy were in it. And um, though the first day I met Connie, I thought I would give up, uh, you know, a development deal at Amblin for one date with that Connie girl. Um, and I ended up making the right choice on that. Um, but it was a movie group and we would run together Saturday mornings and go for breakfast. And I remember that after the movie opened, you know, just that sense of, you know, congratulations from them. And that was pretty huge too. And here is director Jan DeBont. He's talking about the premiere at the beginning here, which we discussed last week, but I think it's a good overall reflection of how the reaction landed for these guys. Almost immediately, the audience embraced the movie. Almost immediately. And 
Am I so fantastic? You cannot even imagine that the audience responds in the same way as you always would hope they would do, but loud. I mean, really responsive, reacting to what's happening, reacting to the, the dialogue quite often. It's a rarity, I think. I mean, the studio was so excited. You couldn't get enough press people to come over. And then Antico, of course, had to make a whole tour through Europe and Asia, of course. And everybody loved it. I mean, what was so remarkable in that movie that it didn't matter if you were in Berlin, in Tokyo, in India, anywhere in, in Italy, whatever, they all responded the same way. I thought that was never possible. They all got it immediately that they were all participating in an adventure, mm -hmm. you know, almost a real-time adventure. It was great. It was like they really felt like it was money well spent. <laughs> they got value for the money. And indeed, the movie kept performing. It only enjoyed one weekend in the top spot as Mike Nichols' Wolf with Jack Nicholson and Michelle Pfeiffer unseated it the next week. But audiences quickly moved on from that, and in its third week, Speed leapfrogged Wolf and settled into second place again, behind Disney's debuting behemoth, The Lion King. As other major releases like Forrest Gump and True Lies stormed into theaters, Speed held its ground. I mean, The Lion King and Forrest Gump. You're talking about two of the biggest financial successes in movie history. The film didn't leave the top five until its seventh weekend, which was incidentally the weekend it crossed the $100 million mark in the U.S. It would continue to draw new and repeat viewers throughout the summer and fall on the way to a total domestic gross of $121,248,145. Internationally, it pulled in about $229 million for an overall worldwide tally north of $350 million on a $30 million budget for a film they probably just hoped would break slightly above even. What was the vibe like in the halls of 20th Century Fox? Here's the studio's former president of production, Tom Jacobson. Fantastic. Now, we, we had an inkling, obviously, from that screening and moving it up that we, uh, you know, had something good on our hands. But you never know. You can never predict. And not only was there tremendous excitement about it, or, you know, the numbers were bigger than we had thought. But the feedback was, you know, the sort of exit polls and all those things were just really high. So it's like, yeah, we did, we did good. <laughs> also, this was the early days of international really blowing up. This movie, like Independence Day, did fantastic overseas, almost two to one. The first time, just to get wonky about numbers, the first time that all of the whole box office, domestic versus international the international past domestic was 97 the release of titanic uh and then it went back down and then like three years later 2003 something like this with the release of maybe the second matrix the international past and never went back pre-covid uh it was like you know two-thirds one-third so it was almost like two to one it definitely was over 60 percent internationals and so this was the early days of that trend starting, which proved its legs, right? Here's Bill Mechanic, former chairman of Fox Filmed Entertainment, who came into the studio as Speed was gearing up for release. Part of when I came to Fox, part of it was changing the importance of things. And one of them was to treat international with the same focus that we spent on domestic. You know, the 5% of the world should be, you know, 70% of your business. So 
I rebuilt all the foreign operations and speed was one of the first things to go out there. And again, we picked our dates because Cano really wasn't known overseas at all. You know, so we picked dates. It was much more selective. Um, so we ran, uh, if I remember, a bunch of different dates, and a lot of them were the same idea of non-competitive dates. So we could get established some places in the summer where nobody was releasing pictures in Europe because of people taking vacations and stuff. But we ended up uh, two-thirds of the business. And Fox was 70% or 65% of the international by the second year. Everybody else sort of woke up to the fact that you're leaving money behind when you just crank them out a release date that, you know, and they're doing it now. It's all, you know, everybody has a, a worldwide release date more because, you know, the internet, but there wasn't a much of an internet then. But, you know, even today, if it's not internet crazy, you know, if it's Marvel, you almost have to do sort of day and date all around the world. But I didn't really believe in that. Every country has their own dates and your own competition. So this one was a flagship for what we were doing and put Keanu and Jan on the road for probably three or four or five months. Just an epic, unqualified success. And to Tom Sherrick's point, the kind of success that makes this industry so exciting and surprising. I just don't feel that anymore. I'll say I was pretty impressed when Star Wars The Force Awakens gobbled up more than $900 million domestically, but I'm sorry, I felt nothing when Avengers Endgame took the all-time worldwide spot away from Avatar. And then again when Avatar reclaimed that spot with a re-release, though I do think what James Cameron has managed to achieve with that franchise overall is the most impressive box office feat of the modern age. And yes, Barbenheimer was fun. But Batman, Home Alone... The Silence of the Lambs, Jurassic Park, Apollo 13, Independence Day, Titanic, The Sixth Sense, and indeed, Speed. These are the truly impressive box office stories to me. They are reflective of Sherrick's sentiment. But, again, maybe I'm just a nostalgic old man. Here's producer Mark Gordon. We made this movie that was kind of the little engine that could. And I do think that it was a series of happy accidents. <laughs> When people say, oh, how did you put this all together in such an interesting way? And I say, accident, 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 accident. You know, I can't tell you that we had this grand vision. We just were trying to get our movie made. And I think yeah. that's true a lot of the times. You can't guarantee, n nobody knows. You just never know. I really can't take credit for being a visionary here. Just to circle back to Speed's opening, I thought I would give you the full spread of that weekend. Speed was number one with 14.4 million. Universal's The Flintstones came in at number two with 12.6 million, a bit of an overperformer in its own right. City Slickers 2 was third with 11.5 million. In its second week of release, Maverick with Mel Gibson came in fourth with 6.8 million. Renaissance Man with Danny DeVito landed at number five with 4.2 million. This one will get a chuckle out of longtime listeners. Coming in at number six was Beverly Hills Cop 3 with 3.3 million. The Cowboy Way with Woody Harrelson and Kiefer Sutherland came in at number seven with 2.8 million. When a Man Loves a Woman, starring soon-to-be SAG nominee Meg Ryan, pulled in 2.4 million in the eighth spot. 
Comic book adaptation The Crow landed at number 9 with 2.3 million. And finally, one of the big runaway hits of the year that would eventually secure a Best Picture nomination, Four Weddings and a Funeral, rounded out the top 10 with 1.1 million. And worth mentioning is Bernardo Bertolucci's Little Buddha, starring Keanu Reeves, was still in the top 15 after 11 weeks in release at this point. The year's final domestic box office grosses were as follows. Number 1, Forrest Gump, $329.6 million. Number 2, The Lion King, $312.8 million. Number 3, True Lies, $146.2 million. Number 4, The Santa Claus with Tim Allen, $144.8 million. Number 5, The Flintstones, $130.5 million. Number 6, it was the year of Jim Carrey after all, Dumb and Dumber with $127.1 million. Number 7, Clear and Present Danger with Harrison Ford, $122.1 million. Number 8, here's our boy, Speed, with $121.2 million. Number 9, more Jim Carrey, The Mask, $119.9 million. And finally, at number 10, another shocking display, Pulp Fiction, with $107.9 million. Outside of the gargantuan success of the first two entries there, I would very quickly wager that Speed and Pulp Fiction were the most impressive performers on that list. Now, there was one other thing here that I thought I would bring up, because look, the hype machine is aimed internally as much as it is externally, right? You want your company excited about what it's doing. With that in mind, there's this story I've heard in drips and drabs about a town hall meeting and a whole production mounted by 20th Century Fox chairman Peter Chernin, you know, everyone's boss here, that was meant to get everybody pumped up for the movie's success. Here's Tom Grain, Fox's former senior vice president of promotional programming, and at the top here, he's talking about John Landau, the studio's former senior vice president of production, who has gone on to become filmmaker James Cameron's producer and right-hand man. He went out and shot a thing of Peter Chernin being the bus driver, getting to a town hall at the studio. And I mean, it's shot really well, including the guy in the uh, convertible coming up. It's driving down the freeway. It feels very much like the movie, but it's Peter rather than Keanu and Sandy. And um, it's, it drives through there and then drives up Pico, turns onto the Fox lot, coming toward the stage. You know, we had thousands of people of employees there for this town hall. And what they had done was they had taken the stage door and put a fake stage door. They opened it up and then built a fake stage door. And then they literally drove the freaking bus in through the door onto the stage and Peter got out. How's that for a victory lap? All right. One final element here is the VHS release. Remember, Bill Mechanic had established a new paradigm for home video in his tenure at Disney. All those clamshell classics from back in the day that lined living room shelves in the 80s and 90s? You can thank Bill in part for that. For the longest time, VHS cassettes of movies were not available for purchase until at least a year after release. They were available for rent at video stores maybe six months after release, and they carried an exorbitant price tag per unit. Something like a hundred bucks for a tape of, I don't know, Die Hard or whatever. And that's partly because video stores were the ones paying that price for each tape. But of course, they were turning right around and then making money off rentals. 
Tim Burton's Batman in 1989 is considered the film to break the mold for sell-through releases, meaning you could buy it six months later for an affordable price tag of 20 bucks or so. Here's former Fox exec Jorge Saralegi. At that point, you put action out for rent because the average guy wouldn't want to own the movie. There are other movies that are available for sale. Action movies were only for rent. And here's Bill Mechanic with his philosophy. Yeah, I didn't believe all that shit. I mean, simple answer is that I believe people collect things that are good. And movies that are fun like Speed are rewatchable as your proof. If something really works, it works. It doesn't work to see it once. If the movie's no good, you watch it and you forget about it. You usually forget about it before you're out of the theater. Among my duties, I ran multiple divisions at Disney, but one of them was home video was under me there, too. And um, I thought all those films were collectible, but the, the industry was being, as it is on most things, pretty stupid about things and going by rules that don't make any sense. And everybody was happy because they were renting cassettes, but that wasn't the way to make the most money. Consumers are the way to make the most money. So... Speed was not that long after I got there, and I thought you could take something like this and sell it. I remember that whatever it was, by then we knew what we had, given the opening of the movie, and we knew who was going to the movie, and we knew that it probably should have been a PG-13 movie. And so that's when we said, no, let's put this thing out for sale as well, because people are going to want to own this movie. And so it did really well in, in video cassette. And it was because of that change, which is, as far as I know, it was the first movie that broke that kind of like rule for action movies. It was also just the first regular action movie that did that. The Speed VHS hit shelves on November 15th, 1994. My birthday! Incidentally, that was the same day Batman hit shelves. November 15th, 1989. Just in time for the holidays. I think we're... 7 to 10 million, maybe 10 million units or something like that. It was the biggest film of the year other than, I think, biggest film or second biggest film of the year other than a Disney animated classic. I'm sure we released those numbers when it came out because the Doubting Thomases were widespread. <laughs> He's obviously referring to The Lion King there, which of course sold like gangbusters on the very paradigm he himself had established. Here's Tom Jacobson. That's something that Bill Mechanic was really good at. And in those days, the you know home video market was really a big market. You could make a ton of money. Uh, I mean, the Home Alone sell-through, you know, sold like 10 million cassettes, whatever formats it was. So Fox was good at that. Fox had a really good aftermarket uh, department. And I remember that about this. What else can I say? You've heard from me plenty on this episode, but I've brought the copy, the figures, and the recollections to back it up. Speed was, in so many ways, the movie of the year in 1994. It thrilled audiences. It impressed critics. It was something people wanted to keep coming back to, and like Bill said, this endeavor is certainly proof of that. It was fine-tuned craftsmanship that transcended many of the industry's self-imposed limitations and boundaries. I'll just throw it back to Siskel and Ebert to put a fine point on it. Speed works. Boy, it sure does. Next week on 50 Miles Per Hour. And the Oscar goes to... 
Speed finds itself at the 67th Annual Academy Awards with three Oscar nominations. That's what you always had hope for when you were a child. I always told my mom I was going to go to Hollywood and I was going to go to the Oscars. And I'm never quite sure if that ever would happen, but it did happen. So that was really cool. I'll talk to the film's big winners about their Cinderella night. We had no idea. We thought it was a good action film, but as far as Academy-wise, it didn't fit the mold. It's hard to describe. I thought I was going to float away like a balloon. It's hard to take it all in because when you're on stage, the lights are so bright, you're lucky to see the first two rows. But unfortunately, in the end, not everyone was able to walk away with Oscar gold. I was a little disappointed. I mean, everybody in the, in the movie business who makes movies wants to go out with, you know, winning an Oscar, but it didn't surprise me. All of that and more next week, right here on 50 Miles Per Hour. Thanks so much for listening. 50 Miles Per Hour is written, produced, and edited by yours truly, Chris Tapley. You can find us on Twitter at 50MPHPod. I'm at Chris Tapley. That's Chris with a K. You can also catch every episode and more at our website, 50MPHPodcast.com. If you dug the show, please like and subscribe and do all the things. We'll see you next time.